Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre. And today I'll be speaking with Emma Galli. Emma is the scientific director of the Luigi Naldi Foundation in Italy, and we'll be talking about corruption, how to detect it and how to fight it. This conversation was recorded live in beautiful Rome, so apologies for some weird sounds that may appear. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this month of March. I'm here with Emma Galli. Emma, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Hi, Ricardo. Thanks to you for inviting me. Oh, it's great to have you here. Um, you are the scientific director of the Luigi Naudi Fondazione. And tell us a little bit, how do you get to this point? Well, yes, I get to this position last year. Um, I'm a professor of public finance at the University of Rome Sapienza and uh, my background um, was um, the was economics of institution and I since I was very young I was uh, you know attending uh, initiative by Fondazione Luigi Naudi and I've been also I also got a scholarship from Fondazione Luigi Naudi to go to study abroad at George Mason University where actually you know I uh, started to study economics and then you know it's quite you know nice to me uh, that after so many years I went back to Fondazione uh, covering a different role which you know have the responsibility to uh, to develop uh, research and um, you know scientific initiatives within the Fondazione about politics and economics especially, uh, as far as I, my uh, background is concerned. So we can say that you were homegrown, so uh, from inside the house already. Yeah, yes, I would say yes, yes. I was very young when I started with Fondazione Luigi Naudi, and so I'm grown up in some respect around the Fondazione. The reason I ask you to join me on the podcast is because your expertise in how to deal with corruption, how to define it, how to fight it, particularly when it relates to uh, the European Union and European Union funds. So let's start with that. Let's start with a baseline description. How do you understand corruption? What does it mean? Yes, well, that's that's a very good question, actually, because it's um, it's very difficult to even define corruption. I mean, corruption is a very complex phenomenon, as you can imagine, and has a lot of uh, um, aspects uh, that is very difficult to capture because, uh, you know, the two sides of the corrupt transactions have a convergent um, interest to silence. And so it's very difficult to make corruption emerge. And even the definition, as I mentioned before, is not easy in the studies, but also in real life, because if we stay with the lawyers, we should be very precise and identifying only specific crimes of corruption. But if we stay more in, uh, with the sociologists and economists, and we are more interested in understanding the corrupt behavior, uh, I would define, as uh, many international organizations do, corruption as any practice or act of abuse of public uh, um, power, 
by the public officials, they could be a politician or a bureaucrat, to gain a private uh, goal and a private interest. Uh, this private interest could be a bribe, but not only. It not necessarily has to be money, but it could be also an appointment in a body or any kind of uh, favor, uh, which is you know, obtained uh, through the abuse of public power. You used a very interesting expression, and that is a convergence to silence. Uh, what does that mean? Go a little more into detail. So corruption is normally thought out as a backroom deal, you know, hush, hush, but uh, people are in the loop. Um, so uh, how does silence add to this? Yes, uh, well, that's another, another point that, you know, deserve attention because uh, when I say convergence to silence, I mean that the, the person that corrupt and the person which is corrupted, uh, they both have an interest to uh, silence, to not make the practice or the uh, abuse um, uh, coming out. Uh, and that's also because uh, in general, at least in Italy, I'm talking about Italy because I'm Italian and I know better the judicial system in Italy. In Italy, for example, there is not a difference in terms of sanction between the two sides of the transaction. So the two sides of the transaction got the same penalty in case they are caught. And this uh, does not create any incentive to one of the two to denounce, especially to the one that is in some respect um, obliged, let's say that, it's not really an obligation, but you know, uh, involved in the practice to denounce. So that's, that's why it's so difficult to uh, capture corruption. There is a lot of corruption which is shadow, which remains under the carpet, and uh, because of that, because there is not a real incentive to make it you know, out. What, when the corruption come out is when the, uh, the relation, so the, the, even the, the, the relation between the two break up for some reason, and one of the two Denounce, but that's something that unfortunately does not happen very often, as we know. Let's go now into what are the main areas where corruption is a problem and affects us all. So, give us some example of these areas that concern you the most. Uh, well, the, um, I should. I, I think it's good to to distinguish the geographical diffusion of corruption and the sector corruption, a diffusion of, uh, of corruption. Because if I think in terms of where corruption is spread, uh, in Europe, I have to say that, uh, I mean, there is a little bit of corruption everywhere. And if we look at the international ranking about measures of corruption, the, well, uh, the most popular is the um, Corruption Perception Index uh, published every year by Transparency International. The picture of the world, as well as the picture of Europe, is quite heterogeneous. So even in Europe, there are countries which are very virtuous and they are very transparent. Uh, and I'm referring to the Nordic countries, uh, some continental European countries. And there are other, like Italy, unfortunately, and like also some uh, Mediterranean and Eastern European countries, which are you know, at you know, um, low level of transparency and show and exhibit a high um, level of corruption. Italy, for example, uh, is uh, improving 
gradually and slowly uh, in terms of uh, diffusion of corruption. And nowadays, uh, we gain a couple of positions in the international ranking, but still, just to give you a number, the CPI, so the Corruption Perception Index for Italy, is 53 on a scale that goes from 0 to 100, which means there is, you know, below the average. Uh, that means that the, the, the perception uh, of the country is that, it, that the country is corrupt. So geographically, there is a quite heterogeneous picture. And for some countries, and Italy is one of those, this heterogeneity is also at local level. Like there are areas of the country in which there is uh, more perception of corruption and other in which there is uh, less. So even, I mean, uh, some countries in Europe, not all, I have to say, but some are not homogeneous in terms of, uh, of, of that. Of course, now the data that I'm, you know, bringing with me are perception of corruption, which is not, which does not mean real corruption, but is, you know, uh, a, a proxy, a measure that give you an idea of how the corruption is perceived by people, managers, you know, public administrators and so on. Talking about the sector, um, the, uh, the sector where corruption is more concentrated are, uh, as we can expect, public works, so infrastructures, uh, health, uh, defense, so those are generally, you know, um, you know, the sector of the public administration where there is more money involved and more corruption. Let's stay here uh, with the perception of corruption. When we are thinking of a society that has different areas, as we mentioned, and how they interact, what are the effects of corruption that can change this perception? So if the perception is right, is it right? And if it is right, how can we change it? If it's not right, how do we deal with that? Yeah, well... Um... The perception, of course, is subjective, but is based also on uh, direct experiences. It's not un only evaluation. The perception is based on your own uh, evaluation, the evaluation of the uh, people which are interviewed, but also um, by some direct or indirect experiences. And uh, of course, I mean, the perception is, um, is a delicate issue because as you mention, it could be affected, it could be underestimated or overestimated, and so it can be affected also by, for example, a recent scandal, political scandal, which has been very much highlighted by the media. Uh, it can be also uh, affected by the previous uh, perception indices, because we are used to think that Italy is corrupt, and so when if, if I'm interviewed, I'm biased also from the previous knowledge about perception of corruption. Uh, but, of course, I mean, it, it's true what you said. I mean, the perception can be overestimated, underestimated. For example, if I'm interviewed and if I'm somebody that wants to uh, fight, you know, uh, the, the um, fight the politicians and administration is very, you know, um, negative about the, these categories of people would tend to overestimate the, the, the perception and, and vice versa. Um, anyhow, perception can be changed, I think, and can be changed even if people um, see that measures or initiatives 
which uh, combat corruption are uh, held. And uh, for example, I can bring you the Italian case. In the last, mm, I would say, five years, the perception is improved. And why? I mean, my guess is that is improved because uh, um, uh, we had a quite you know, strong uh, campaign, uh, cultural campaign against corruption, uh, which probably um, uh, has sent a signal to people that the government, uh, and actually more than the government, we have an institution, an independent institution, which uh, is entitled to uh, fight and prevent corruption, is doing something that, you know, uh, finally, um, the uh, corruption issue has become uh, central. Uh, finally, uh, the corruption issue has uh, been considered a very, go very uh, severe obstacle to social, economic development. And so I think that there is a, there is a, a cultural you know, um, a cultural environment is developing, which is uh, uh, starting to uh, do not accept corruption, do not be so tolerant towards corruption, and to try to change something, change, you know, behavior and practices. That is a great point, Emma, and leads me to my next question, and that is how can we make that change then? How can civil society help in that process? There are central and local anti-corruption measures of course at the european at the european union level on the member states at local governments but how can people organize and fight corruption tell us your experience on that i, I think that corruption is very uh, spread and persistent in environment in which social capital is low so uh, I think that we should uh, build or rebuild in case it has been eroded for you know, some reason, uh, our social capital. And uh, Italy, for example, is a country where social capital has uh, been uh, eroded in the last decades. And so the um, social norms have uh, been uh, uh, weaker. And the, even the ties, even the relation among people and between people and institution uh, has been, um, has, has went through a very critical uh, phase. So uh, my impression is that, uh, as you said, I mean, there are policies and measures that try to fight corruption, and that's, you know, one thing, but uh, it's also important that the fight of corruption comes from society, from, come from the, you know, uh, from bottom, not from the top. The best antidote to corruption is social capital. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, there are data on social capital for all European countries, and not only for, you know, also countries which are not um, Europe. And uh, they show that even with respect to social capital and trust between people and trust with respect to the institution, uh, there is a quite heterogeneous picture of European countries. And countries which have low uh, level of corruption are also countries which have high social capital, high sense of civic engagement, high sense of civicness. And that's what I think it's, it's important to, to stress and to build and to rebuild in case the social capital has been eroded. 
for you know several uh, reasons uh, so try to uh, try to strengthen as much as possible the this distrust uh, and uh, even you know invest more and more in our education in our you know respect and sense of the institution because that's that's very important to fight corruption and that's very important because it you know, allow us to understand that uh, if um, the country is corrupt, uh, everybody is damaged by that, uh, because this uh, um, weaken the uh, democratic institution, it weaken the uh, the right of people, the right to work, the right to be, uh, you know, in the in the position because you merit to be in those positions, um, the right for the enterprises, for the firms to enter the market, especially the small companies, which uh, otherwise may be disincentive to uh, enter the market to make new investment. And also, for example, to, um, to attract foreign direct investments in, in the country because of course I mean a, a foreign investors would not invest in a country which is corrupt because you know has to deal with that. So I think it's it's important to work for uh, in the in the, uh, for the for the um, for combating corruption even from society. Not only wait that authorities or governments, you know, make policies against. Not only um, consider uh, the um, repression the way to combat corruption, but also try to prevent and prevention move from uh, from uh, um, developing a, a culture of of uh, um, of civicness a culture of you know civic engagement and a culture that make corrupt people to feel like they are not part of the community that is a really really important point Emma and that is uh, how to think about you know multinational uh, companies that go into a country and invest in that country but they say to the governments well you have to take care of that uh, of the problem of corruption that is that is a fantastic point now um let's get back to um this interactions let's talk about relations that can be uh, constructed when we think about groups like civil society, companies, media, political parties. How does things how does these things work together? Yeah. Well, media, uh, I think that they have a very important role in uh, in enlightening corruption uh, cases and even in uh, making people, uh, you know, public opinion uh, aware of what happens in, in, in the countries and so I think that they, they play a very important role. And uh, actually, uh, I, I mean, from my reading, I know that uh, several uh, changes even in voting behavior or participation to elections uh, in uh, several countries were also um, affected, positively affected by the role of media, um, which were, you know, making uh, noise, let's say, and enlightening the uh, corruption uh, scandal. 
Well, political parties, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an issue because uh, um, there are some that make um, campaign for transparency uh, like the major goal of uh, their, you know, their uh, objective and their platform. And uh, also because you know, politicians and political parties in general are considered you know, domain uh, where corruption uh, occurs. So, you know, I think that uh, life for politicians is difficult at the moment because uh, uh, they uh, they are you know among the most so they are very much under the you know under the light of the media under the you know the uh, control and monitoring by citizen uh, and but at the same time I mean uh, they they can do a lot I mean they can really uh, be aware that uh, people is are tired of corruption, people are worried because corruption really undermines rights and opportunities uh, to work and to develop the economy. And so they really have to take seriously uh, the, um, the messages that come from the international organization uh, um, uh, recommendation. Now, turning into another topic, politicians are under a microscope. They are under pressure. Uh, for example, some of that pressure could be from uh, politicians changing to the private sector and vice versa, and the perception of corruption that comes with that. So a lot of people discuss um, regulation. How can regulation stop this kind of um, bad habits in the political class? As a liberal that you are, tell us what you think about this demands for more regulation. Well, actually, the uh, 12 many regulation uh, is one of the channels through which corruption develops. And there are a lot of uh, empirical studies which show that. So a, the, a big size of public sector uh, brings about corruption uh, and that's quite you know quite spread in uh, in european countries i mean there is you know strong empirical evidence about that so um, i think we have to be careful to uh, regulate too much because regulation and regulation of the market especially um, put um, agencies or bureaucrats and politicians into the position to um, to authorize and to give license for example to a company to you know to control or to regulate to to uh, to manage a specific market and uh, of course when uh, an authorization have to be given to a company when a license have to be or permit have to be released uh, there uh, you may have, you know, a margin of corruption. So I, I don't think that regulation uh, um, have to be so heavy because, you know, uh, as I said, I mean, too many regulations give more and more power to uh, bureaucrats and to politicians to um, to use uh, those regulations to exercise the power, uh, to even to you know get a bribe to bypass the regulation. So um, I think that you know there is a kind of optimal degree of regulation. I, I think so. Uh, in Europe, uh, in Italy, but also in other European countries, uh, uh, there is this tendency to uh, prevent and to solve the problem of corruption through not normatives and provisions and uh, uh, regulation and even, you know, uh, independent institutions, which are bureaucracy as well. Uh, that's, of course, uh, is, is a way, but I would not push too much in that direction because um, regulation is tricky.
So in a practical point of view, and to give our listeners tools to become more active to deal with this topic of corruption, you were just saying that people are tired, especially in certain types of countries. So with that, uh, tell us how can we fight this fatigue and try to correct this systemic problem? Well, people uh, may use uh, their vote. I mean, they have, uh, they, have a, they have a way to monitor the behavior of politicians. They also have a way to monitor the, um, the way bureaucrats uh, manage public resources and make, you know, manage their public activity because uh, in many European countries, I can think of Portugal, I can think of Italy, I can think also of some Eastern European countries, there are transparent regulation that we could at least take advantage of them so you know uh, every level of governments have to publish information data about their own public activity so I think that citizens uh, should be and we all should be more active to exercise our citizenship our to use all the tools that we have available uh, so we shouldn't just complain and we should not just you know um, give all the responsibility to politicians i mean they have politicians they have responsibilities bureaucrats have the responsibilities but we have also the responsibility to do something to monitor to change our vote to control for the uh, competences and the honesty of politicians that we elect and uh, to use the uh, the tool that we have in terms of transparency to control the public activity and the way public services are provided. So we can do something also from the bottom and try to, to, um, to exercise all the uh, tools that we have in democracies to make politicians and bureaucrats more accountable. Now that we're getting close to the end of our conversation, and I hope to have you back soon, since you are doing work in this area, and also the Luigi Naldi Fondazione is doing some work, some very important work in the area of fighting corruption. I'm going to ask you to tell us, uh, and to our listeners, of course, how can they know more about this topic and uh, what organizations, for example, they can follow? Uh, there are. I mean, if if, if people uh, really, you know, are interested and want to become more and more aware of what is corruption, how uh, corruption is uh, spread, how it's persistent in Europe, uh, um, they have a lot of channels of information that they can use. Uh, there are, um, uh, for example, the reports published by Transparency International just to give you an indication and uh, uh, there are also uh, organizations like Freedom House Heritage Foundation that publish you know yearly regularly data about you know the uh, effectiveness of regulation about the quality of the institution in general about the quality of governance about control of corruption uh, and you know so they can have uh, information using those those channels and there is also a rich um, rich um, literature in economics in sociology in political science in law which address issues uh, related to corruption. Uh, there are studies that um, focus more on how to measure corruption, how to have a, an idea of how much corrupt is a, a country, is a sector, is a, 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 an area. Uh, there are studies which focus more on which are the causes of corruption and there are 
a lot of determinants, a lot of factors which may increase corruption, and that's another big issue. And there are also uh, studies and reports which focus more on the effects of corruption. So how, which, which is the cost of corruption for society. So I think that you know, if you want to read, if you want to get informed, I mean, there is really huge material, studies, scientific, uh, more divulgative uh, material that you can really you know, uh, read and uh, use to be more and more aware of uh, which is the, the state of the art uh, about this uh, big issue, this big problem that in Europe we, we, we have. So Emma, as I'm getting close to the end of the, our conversation today, you bring up some such interesting points that deserve to go into more detail. So again, I'm going to ask you to come back to the podcast and continue this conversation. Um, I'm going to put all the information on the show notes so people can know more and get more involved. But for now, I'm going to thank you so much for coming to the podcast, Emma. Yes, thank you very much, Ricardo. And uh, I will be very happy to continue this conversation. We have so much more to say about it. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm back just to remind you that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And if you like it, give us a five-star review. And that way you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by ELF for this month of March. On the 22nd and 23rd of March, based in Belgium, it's going to be a Zoom webinar. We have European Trainers Academy, training of trainers in online trainings. Yes, that's the title. European Trainers Academy is a project that established an ELF framework for training of trainers in order to further promote capacity building and improve the quality of training across the liberal network. And then on the 25th of March, again, a Zoom webinar, also based in Brussels, we have on the agenda. Cryptocurrencies in a digital economy. Money changes over time to address the needs and economic possibilities of its era. Today we are entering a new economic paradigm where the transaction parties are not just people with people, but also people with machines and machines with machines. As the EU addresses this challenge with regulation currently in the European Parliament, what are the implications of the monetary policy and the financial markets? And most importantly, what are the implications for European citizens and business? And then on the 26th to the 28th of March, also in Belgium, but also online, we have Elf Book Event, EU Diplomacy Fit for the Future. It's a time for upheaval and reconfiguration of global governance and international relations. And we aim to find out how to carry out EU foreign policy objectives based on our common values and the promotion of individual and collective freedom and human rights. This seminar will explore how the European Union diplomatic service works, main priorities and main structural and strategic challenge it faces. To know more about all these events, just go to liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place.
the Liberal Europe podcast. It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>